Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're excited to bring you the first part of a two-part episode with Skylar Fernandez. Skylar is ranked as a Powerless 100 VC and is the founder and general partner of VU Venture Partners, a multi-stage venture capital fund focused on consumer, enterprise, fintech, frontier, healthcare, and proptech. VU Venture Partners has offices in San Francisco, New York, and Hong Kong. But you're in for an amazing episode, guys, because the story does not end there. Skylar is also the founder and CEO of Venture University, the world's leading investor accelerator for individuals breaking into venture capital, private equity, and angel investing. And the way Skylar has combined running a fund and an accelerator for emerging managers to create a VC powerhouse is incredible. Let's look at some of the stats. The Venture University team have invested over 1.8 billion in more than 250 companies, including Beyond Meat, Facebook, Uber, Twitter, Venmo, FabFitFun, Oculus, Oscar, Wish, and other great tech success stories. The result, VU has consistently realized more than a four times net cash return to their LPs. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Do you get cold inbound deal flow that you'd wish you could help but can't invest in? You might consider directing them to the European VC's newly launched self-paced fundraise acceleration program and community. It's tailor-made for founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round and gives them a clear 10-step process to go from wanting to raise to ready to raise. It's community-centered, giving them access to mentors and fellow founders to spar with around their process, plans, and pains. Stop sending founders on their way with an empty referral to another VC firm or angel group. Send them to a community and resource that will actually help them go from minus cold outreaches to a deliberate fundraising plan that will actually work. Send them to the europeanvc.com forward slash raise. Before we start, I'd like to share with our listeners that prior to reaching to Skyler, I had no idea why he had such a familiar last name, Fernandes, the way we say it in my in my language, Portuguese. Yep. Yeah, and I actually found out that Skyler has Portuguese origins, so that's quite cool. Being a Portuguese, I find that amusing. And having that said, Skyler, welcome to the show. And do you care to start by sharing some context on your Portuguese origins, or even a curious story <laughs> about extreme wicker basket racing? <laughs> No, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, actually, on the Portuguese side, I don't think I've ever brought this up in the interviews that I've been done over the last decade of my venture career. Actually, I don't think I've ever touched on this topic, but it actually is somewhat relevant, which is my grandfather grew up in Madeira and came to the U.S. through Ellis Island, through New York. And his dad initially started off with a small grocery shop. I think it was like a, just meats, like all it did was sell meats. And my grandfather went to Boston University or Boston College, and he, after graduating, launched a grocery store chain with my last name called Fernandi Supermarket. And I got to learn about the difference of scalability of companies. The idea that one location that had lots of different products, like it wasn't just bread, it wasn't just meat, it wasn't just vegetables, 
The idea that you could have one location with lots of SKUs is kind of innovation. And the idea that you could go from one location with lots of SKUs to then having lots of locations that would create a grocery store chain, which he grew to about 36 locations, then needed things like more advanced distribution. And also my grandfather eventually became head of the Grocers Association globally that standardized the barcode, which you needed to kind of having the use of inventory counting. I was raised by my grandfather, not more than even my dad. And learning about the scalability of going from like a company that only sells one, you know, one product to a company that has multiple products to a company that has multiple locations of multiple products to then uh, leads creating a platform of lots of other innovations like the barcode for inventory and distribution. So I don't think I've ever mentioned that there was a little bit of influence on my own life of thinking about the future of taking what has typically not been a tech vertical, but where there's lots of innovation and venture opportunities to be had on the consumer side, which has been a lot of my investments have been both consumer CPG oriented investments, but I've also done a lot of you know frontier biotech and space technology investments. But it does come a little bit from a, an origin story of a grandfather that came from Madeira. Just a curiosity, because I've co-written a book on family businesses and successions in them. Mm. I'm just curious, did you work in that business as well? No, actually, but yeah, it is a really interesting story about, obviously, with a lot of generational wealth, you know, the best way to, you know, have a, a family with, you know, a few million dollars is to start with a family that has many, many more millions than that. <laughs> yeah, I think my, my dad is a really good example of that. My dad never got into the family business of the grocery store industry. He became a musician and very artistic, not necessarily a large breadwinner in having a musical career, but got to live a great lifestyle because of the family that he got to grow up in. But yeah, I think you kind of saw a large generational wealth that kind of evaporated with the second generation with my grandfather and his three sisters. They all have families that kind of lived off of the benefit of the initial business and never really had huge career successes to the same degree that, you know, building what became one of the largest grocery store chains on the East Coast of the United States. And I think the impact that it had on me was figuring out how to kind of go back to building generational wealth for the future. But it does make me fearful for my own children, making sure that they don't squander wealth that I create as a VCP investor. So yeah, that's definitely mindful of that. I'm curious now that you have that story as a family as well, what are your thoughts with regards to your own children? Uh, yeah, so also a great one. So I think having children as a VC is fascinating because I think we're already kind of the hippies of finance <laughs> and the things that we invest in. And I think that's the one thing that my mom and dad always liked is like, at least I went into a more conservative field, but it is kind of the hippie <laughs> version of finance of highly innovative, yeah, yeah. disruptive things. But I have a five-year-old son and a one and a half-year-old son. So they're still just kind of figuring out what their parents even do. The life that they're going to grow up with constantly being surrounded about learning about different business models. I know the one thing that has impacted me already is certainly with the balance that we have of venture capital with our fund VU venture partners, but also our investor accelerator venture university. I think a lot about the future of education and the future of the venture capital asset class. And we're certainly disrupting both. But I think from a children perspective, I'm not sure if my children will ever go to college. And I think when we were talking to, you know, planning for, you know, financial purposes for saving for college for our children, I thought to myself, my two children may never go to college. They may end up just going to Venture University for four years and learning about how to do venture capital and private equity. And then maybe they just use 200,000 to go start their own company. But it would be kind of foolish of me to put all of that money into a college savings plan 
that gets taxed negatively if I don't use it for education. So I've taken an approach where I am saving money for them to go to college, but it's being saved in a tax advantaged way where they could use it not for education, but maybe to start their own companies if they wanted to. And I think that's certainly impactful for how I think of the future of education and the future of my children's lives. We'll see how that goes. Maybe they'll still want to be boring and do a traditional college <laughs> or maybe get into like MIT and Stanford and drop out after two years. I'd be very supportive of that no matter what. So your reflections on having children and also being interested in ed tech because it definitely resonates with me. I also come from a background of having spent quite some time looking at how universities are structured. Mm -hmm. What are your views there? How does it influence you? Yeah, I think, well, if I look back on my, I went to NYU undergrad and I was fortunate to graduate in less than four years. So I graduated in three years. The reason was I studied during the summers at Harvard and at Brown University and the impact on that was the the summers at Harvard, I met really interesting people that became more influential in my life going forward than most of the people I met at NYU. But if I reflect what was the value of going to college for me, it was really getting into a college that was in New York City where the best accounting and investment banks, consulting firms, they recruited from NYU with as long as with Columbia University, but it was certainly one of the top schools that you recruit from for getting into like investment banking. And if I wanted to do internships during the summers and during the semesters, NYU was a really great pit, you know, place for me. The value of any class that I took in my three years at NYU, hard to say that I actually got any value from any of that. It was kind of like getting accepted into NYU, gave me access to the career services of being able to apply for the jobs on the internal career board. And reflecting on that's kind of a sad outcome for the value of not just NYU, but I think for most people when they reflect back, you get a lot more value from work experience than you do from academics. And so I think there's a switch going on between what is the value of education. If you think back to the traditional education that was created was basically for people to learn how to work in a factory where you could sit in a chair for a long period of time with a pencil and you could listen and follow directions. The future now, I think, is not the expectation that you're going to you know, go to school and you're entitled to a job after you graduate, but you need to be in a position where you're going to create your own company and your own cash flow for yourself has to be one of the other options. It's not that you're just entitled to a job after you graduate from college. And I think that's you know also an epiphany that comes up with as you get older is most people are not really good at executing anything. Most people are cogs and are more costly than the cash flow that they generate. And it goes back to kind of the Pareto principle of the 80-20 rule of very few people in an organization are the ones that actually matter. So anybody that wants to complain about why a CEO gets paid so much more than everybody else, it's like, well, look to see where the where the value actually comes from. You know, 80% of the people could probably, you know, be cut and the company would actually still go on versus the few people at the top. If they get cut, you wouldn't have a company. It's also why large companies can spin out of control really quickly if you lose the top people. But again, reflection on the future of education on that is you want to build the future of education where people are learning real skills which tie to gaining work experience rather than just academics. And that's why we created Venture University to begin with. This is a very different perspective on developing a university. And we're not legally a university, but we use university in the name because we're trying to redefine what a university is and provide more value to people than if you went to a traditional university. So 
you know, if you went to like Harvard Business School or Stanford, like congrats for getting in, but you're still praying that you get a job for the summer and you're not guaranteed a job for the summer that'll hopefully lead you for your full-time career. At VU, A, we're more competitive to get into than Harvard Business School or Stanford. We're about a 1% acceptance rate versus even like Harvard or Princeton undergrad is 5 or 6% acceptance rate. But at least if you get into VU, you're guaranteed high quality work experience while also having a really great academic curriculum. And the results kind of you know speak for themselves. The fact that two thirds of the people that graduate from VU break into venture capital and, and private equity versus you don't have a two thirds probability of that outcome, even if you went to Harvard Business School or Stanford. So I think you're really seeing that people value work experience over academics. And that's a big part of the future of, I think, evolution of education of why people get hired in the first place. You'll always get hired because of your work experience more than the academics. So I think we're kind of at the leading front of that evolution that's happening of how people are finding value in education itself. The established organizations, the established universities adapting to this? It'll be interesting if they did. I think there's a lot of friction for them to do so. One is, I don't know how that they offer work experience other than becoming companies that have operations that do things other than teach. Like we were really unique in our model because we created ourselves as a venture fund, but one that also has an investor accelerator attached to it. So we're immersing you into our own investment fund from the operations of a fund with a program. So unless like an undergrad wants to launch, like for people that want to study marketing, I'm not sure I see Harvard launching their own digital marketing agency, but like they could try it. I know that's certainly a, the vision that we have building out is building out multiple operational verticals that people can do apprenticeships in while also learning. It kind of goes back to, you know, if you think of someone who's studying to be a doctor with like a residency or someone that is learning to be a chef and they have a residency and like learning how to cook. Those are the things that you know, there's real skills to be had, but you can only get it by actually doing, not by learning. And so learning by doing is really what you have to create. So I think a lot of the liberal arts places are going to not be able to adapt with this. What I would offer them is, you know, we have started engaging with some universities where we can basically be a solution provider for some undergrads and MBA programs. But it is a hard thing because their priorities are different from, I think, students' actual success because they want you to learn for as long as possible and pay tuition for as long as possible. They're kind of anti just getting work experience and minimizing the value of the learning piece. So I think there's a little bit of a conflict in probably the future of how they're going to evolve. Many of them will go bankrupt. I think it's probably one of the interesting things on the future of education. One of the next biggest bubbles will be college debt and how that'll play out. The future of education is going to be fun of how I think it'll move away from the traditional academic pieces and you'll kind of be learning a lot more from an experiential perspective. Have you done any investments into companies directly attacking this? So saying, okay, we're going to be the next university. Yeah, we've looked into some of the companies that have been trying to do that. We have not made any investments into them, even though I know that to be a thesis that our own venture university plays into. We have not pursued investing in any other companies doing it. The reason is probably that all the ones I've seen, I'm not a fan yet of their approaches. I think we're kind of at the early innings of first movers versus fast followers. It's pretty hard to find examples of first movers that have ever won, which is why I'm always scared when a startup <laughs> pitches me and says, we have first mover advantages, like as if I've never heard that line before. But it also scares the crap out of me because almost no first movers have ever won. So I love when founders say, hey, we're the fast follower and we're going to learn from <laughs> some of the approaches and do the best version of that and raise the most money and win. I'm really excited for those type of pitches. So maybe the hesitation has been that I haven't been a fan of a lot of the approaches. The other challenges of them is that the 
business model of those are kind of hard. You have to find something where a lot of the um, approaches that have been presented to me so far for investment have been more like placement organizations where they're placing you into work environments. I'm a much bigger fan of owning that operation myself. So, you know, launching a real estate private equity version of VU is certainly something that we're looking into. Doing one for people that want to break into hedge funds or asset management, things like that. But it has to be tied to something that people find a lot of, like the higher paid careers, I think are the ones where there's more value and experience. And the lower paying careers, I think the A, you don't even need a college degree. It's kind of sad, like of people that have gone to college, of the jobs that they're doing, how many of them require an undergrad degree? And it's like 40%. And then if you say, well, how many people are doing the career that ties to their major? It's like 40%. So if you use those metrics, going to college is not a big success like it used to be. Scholar, I have to ask something I've seen that actually got me quite excited when I first saw it. And there is a Portuguese kind of darling startup doing it. So that I have kind of an interest there. It's um, income share agreements to finance. Sure. Oh, yeah. Um, we, we, yeah. We, just start, we just started using income share agreements at VU. I'm a big, big believer in the future of income share agreements, and I, I definitely have my perspective on them. But yeah, what's been your thoughts so far on that? Nah, it's interesting when you brought up a controversial topic of, you know, is it in the best interest of the universities of, you know, student success or them graduating quickly versus, you know, keeping them in to avoid yeah. financial struggles that these organizations might and do have? Uh, but it's, kind of, it's, a real, it's a real opportunity cost yeah. of whether or not you're going to yeah. delay your own income yeah. and continue to pay, you know, two to four years of tuition. Yeah. 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 But it's interesting, at least from my perspective, how income share agreements, they kind of solve that, right? They do. Yeah. What's interesting about the ISA market is it's just in its first beginnings yeah. of starting to kind of figure out what are market fair terms for an income sharing agreement. And some of them require an upfront payment and then the rest of it still is once you get a job. We partner with an amazing organization called MentorWorks. We met with a bunch of different ISA providers. MentorWorks was certainly our favorite of all of them. And so we've now, I think we've maybe done 15 or 20 ISAs for people that have done Venture University. And the way it works with them, I don't believe there's any upfront, there's no upfront fee. And you start paying only once you get a job, but it's only once you get a job that makes over a certain amount of money. So if you, yeah. if you get a job that's below a certain threshold, you don't have to pay the ISA. You also have early payback that is possible, but it usually will come out to like, you know, depending on the model that you go with with an ISA, you can pay back 5% of your income, 10% of your income to pay back the cost of education. But that's great because the alignment is completely aligned now in the organization that you studied at yeah. to get you a job afterwards. Yeah. And it's yeah. really, we're not going to get paid unless you get a job in the future. And so there is an alignment. Again, at VU, we accept 1% of the people that apply. So I have pretty high confidence that the people that are doing our program are going to have jobs afterwards. The question is, are you going to have success in the career that you want in doing venture capital private equity or are you going to end up doing something else either way you're going to have an income afterwards so the risk on our side is actually pretty low a pretty low probability that you're not going to have a job afterwards and pay it back unless maybe you're already independently wealthy from like your own family office and that's why you're not going to have a job but if that's the case you wouldn't have been doing an income sharing agreement to begin with and but yeah i think it is a really novel play of starting to basically securitize all of these income share agreements into an asset that other investors can then buy into in a form of you know paid cash flow for yourself because they do pay off more cash flow than the cost of capital up front. So 
Yeah. It is an interesting new asset class for investors. It's making access to education that much more affordable for, I know, people that apply to Venture University and other programs. They're just starting to happen in Europe. We have a meeting with, I think it was like our second or third meeting with a leading player in Europe doing income share agreements, but they do require a larger upfront payment. I guess that speaks to uh, risk aversion in Europe versus the States. But <laughs> yeah, correct. I 100% that's, agree. That's... that's why we've been more hesitant of going with them yet in Europe, but, uh, but certainly on our, we'd love to be able to accept people from around the world to do our program, but the MentorWorks is currently only for U.S. citizens. Yeah, yeah. Skylar, I think many of our listeners have like their ears ringing right now because they're very curious if they don't know what you guys are doing. So maybe let's just start with, tell us what VU is, the fund, Absolutely. the investor accelerator, so we all have kind of a common level of understanding. Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of do a good framework. So we, ha- we operate two core entities that work under really one company. So we have our investment fund, which is V Venture Partners, and it's a traditional venture capital fund. We invest in startups. On the Venture University side is an investor accelerator for people that want to gain venture capital and private equity work experience. The fund side is pretty straightforward. So on that side, we're making investments between $100,000 and $1 million per company. We're pretty actively investing. So we do about three to five investments a quarter, about 18 to 20 investments a year. We are investing stage-wise pre-revenue all the way up through growth stage. So some companies have no revenue. Some companies are doing, you know, 50 to 70 million of revenue. So we certainly are multi-stage. Sector-wise, we're multi-sector. So we have six deal sourcing teams. We have our two generalist teams, our consumer team and our enterprise team, uh, which are again, super generalist. Like if you sell to a consumer or you sell to an enterprise, so pretty much covers everything. But then we have four more vertical focuses. We have our FinTech team for anything in the financial services or crypto space. We have our healthcare team, which has four sub-verticals, health technology, telehealth, if you have a meeting with a doctor virtually. We have medical devices, biotechnology, and pharma. The next vertical we have is Frontier. Frontier also has four sub-verticals of advanced AI, advanced robotics, advanced materials, and space technology. And then lastly, we have our prop tech team for real estate technology, both residential and commercial real estate and construction tech. So that is on the fun side geographically. We have three offices, as you mentioned in the introduction. We have an office in San Francisco, New York, and Hong Kong. Today, I'm in our new San Francisco office that we just moved into. Awesome. uh, That's around the Embarcadero where all the peers are. We haven't reopened the New York office, and I'm not sure when we'll ever reopen a New York office, but it could be within the next 12 or 24 months. And then the Hong Kong office has actually been the only office that's always been open, even during COVID, funny enough. But geographically, we invest globally. We have portfolio companies in Latin America, in Europe, Asia, in the Middle East. We're looking at deals right now in Africa. So we are a global fund of where we look to do deals. This really kind of covers probably what the core on the fun side. And then on Venture University, it's for people that are pretty broad in their backgrounds and in ages. So the people that apply to do Venture University's Investor Accelerator are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. Every cohort, we try to do roughly 25% for every 10 years of age. We do that strategically. A, it helps us in helping to source opportunities from a lot of different backgrounds and networks. You get people that have 
industry expertise. Some of them have five years of industry expertise. Some of them have 20 years of industry expertise. So you get a really good diversification on backgrounds. And then from an absorption into the industry, people can be with us for anywhere from three months to 12 months to doing our program. After graduating, you know, we have about a two-thirds success rate in what people do afterwards in VC and PE. The reason we have such a high absorption we don't have 30, 40 people competing for analyst roles. We have some people competing for analyst roles, some for associate, some for principal, some for partner roles. Additionally, we have about 25% of the cohort are emerging fund managers, so people that are looking to launch their own funds. Then we have about 15, 20% that are family offices and angel investors. But the way the program works is it's a, an 11-week program. Again, you can do it for three months up to 12 months of the year. You would join either part-time or full-time onto our investment team at VU Venture Partners, and you would join one of those six deal sourcing teams. There's a, an academic portion, which is the minority of the program, but it's about 25% of the program's academic, where we have a master class for one week learning everything about VC and, and PE. And then we have advanced modules that will start in week two and three, where every Tuesday and Thursday we go deep on topics like how to raise your own fund, how to operate a board of directors, financial modeling from scratch, cap table, exit analysis, all of that. And then the third part of the academic uh, piece is that we do fireside chats. So every week we do about two fireside chats. We've now done about 150 plus fireside chats with venture funds, private equity funds, and founders. So those are the three parts of the academic. The main program is the Investor Accelerator, is the apprenticeship program, where in weeks two through week 11, you join the team and you're presenting and pitching companies to our partners meeting every Monday. So you're deciding what are the top deals that you met with from the previous week that you want to have high conviction on and you want to present to the partners meeting. We have management meetings once a week with each team. Team, and then you get to decide what deals you want to bring to an investment committee and then vote on the investments we're going to make. So the difference between like an internship versus an apprenticeship is it's a much more senior role. If you do an internship, you're going to kind of do a bunch of BS work, a bunch of busy work. You're not going to have upside in any of the deals that are probably invested in. And you have very little control over what deals are brought to partner meetings, what deals are brought to the investment committee. So this is a much more elevated senior role that you take on. And you get to participate in the upside of the investments we make. So of, of all the deals that we do every quarter, we share in the upside with everyone that's in the cohort. So effectively by having in uh, Venture University's Investor Accelerator and having our fund, we've really created what is now uh, mathematically uh, the most scaled venture fund in the world. We're, we're sourcing and evaluating about 20,000 companies a year, which is about 10 times more than a traditional fund that looks at 2,000 deals a year. But we're being just as picky, if not more picky, because we're still doing 15 to 20 investments a year. But rather than investing in 1% of the deals, we're investing in 0.1%. So about 10 times more selective because we're looking at 10 times more deal flow. But we're not spraying and praying. We're actually being quite concentrated and being a lot more picky than a typical fund. So it creates this wonderful platform to really outperform as a venture fund where we're able to get allocations in the most competitive rounds per quarter that are happening in the venture asset class in that after people go through Venture University, they join these other funds or they launch other funds. So we have insiders uh, kind of infiltrating the entire industry in the nicest way possible with really great talent. But we have inside access with a growing number of funds as we graduate more people. And we're now at about 350 graduates from Venture University over the last three years. And so that's a great unfair advantage, but it's also a sustainably competitive advantage as we have more people graduate, joining other funds and launching other funds. And so it really is a great kind of 
the most scalable venture fund with really proprietary access to deal flow at a growing number of venture groups. I have a question there, Skylar. Uh, you said that you are 10 times more selective than the normal VC fund. Mm -hmm. I have to ask you, why don't you raise a bigger fund so that you don't have to be? Because, you know, <laughs> if your deal flow is as good. Yeah, so what's funny is like, if you look at GPs of an average venture fund of like five or 10 people, they'll source 2,000 companies and they'll invest in 20 companies. So they'll pitch to their investors, you know, we're only investing in 1% of the deals that we look at. But what they won't tell you is, yeah, they saw 2,000 companies, but how many companies were actually available for them to view? And the answer is about 200,000 companies. Like 2020, about 200,000 companies were raising capital pre-seed through Series B. Series C plus was even fewer companies, but it's a smaller company that survived to raise that larger amount of capital. But 200,000 companies were raising capital globally pre-seed through Series B. So now if you said, well, GP, you're pitching to raise LP capital, you're only seeing 1% of deal flow that exists. And no GP wants to admit that to LPs. So they like to say that they only invest in 1% of the deal flow they see. What they don't want to admit is they're only seeing 1% of the deal flow that exists. And so with Venture University, we're seeing about 20,000 companies a year, so 10 times more deal flow than them, but we're still investing in about 15 to 20 companies. So that's why we're investing in 0.1% versus 1%. So we can say right now we're looking at about 10% of global deal flow, 20,000 of the 200,000. And that's with right now an investment team inclusive of the investor accelerator of about a 70-person team. So it just it's a much, much larger investment team than a typical fund of five or 10 people. To your point of like, well, why don't we just raise a bigger pool of capital and invest in even more companies? If you do that, you basically push yourself to investing in later stage deals. So we end up looking like a, an Andreessen Horowitz or a Sequoia, where most of our investments are Series B or later stage. And when you're doing that, you can definitely deploy more capital, but you're now moving away from doing pre-seed, seed Series A and Series B deals as your core. And so that's kind of the good example of strategy drift, that if you have a lot of success, you start moving away from your core asset that you're good at investing in, and you just get greedy on having a bigger fund with a management fee so you can just get richer faster but probably with mediocre results while doing that what i like about our model is it allows us to effectively do pre-seed through series b at a scale that's never been achievable before because if you wanted to have a 50 to 100 person investment team like we have 70 people you'd have to have a billion dollar fund but if you had a billion dollar fund you can't do pre-seed through series b so our model allows us to effectively do seed through series b at scale without the requirement of having a billion dollar fund to support that team size Walk me through it, Skylar. Wouldn't you say that the reason why you can't deploy a billion dollar fund into pre-seed and seed and series A is because you don't have the deal flow that would sustain it, but you do? You A, wouldn't have the deal flow to make really great decisions. So it would be a yeah. real yeah. spray and pray approach. But like a deploying a billion dollars into seed and series A, like good luck. The only way you could do it is you could over-invest in companies that don't really need that amount of capital right now, which is probably not a good thing to do. And so, yeah, like the whole venture capital asset class, if you think about it, all last year, 2020, which overall was a much stronger year than people were expecting with COVID, at like $180 billion was the amount of capital deployed into venture capital, which is like the size of one or two really large private equity funds. So like the fact that the entire 
asset class is the size of one or two big private equity funds of like a hundred billion each. Like that's how big the asset class is in venture. So it's really small. So you can't effectively deploy a billion into seed through series A. And so you have to kind of go back to being picky. The only solution right now is like take a billion dollars and fund like a hundred venture funds that are all independently executing their own strategies and let them kind of pool capital together to do deals. That's kind of where you're at right now is the state of things. But if you could have a group like ours, which is allowing you to have a team as if you had a billion dollars under management with a fund that's only about a hundred million dollar fund. That's actually brings me to another interesting question, which is you have very close up knowledge to emerging managers that you know will go out and raise their own funds? Yeah, so actually, so you bring up a good point. So we are looking at how do we launch a fund to fund to also back the emerging fund managers that are graduating from VU. We haven't started marketing this as publicly, but people know about it who have been part of the program. We've created a very low cost infrastructure for emerging fund managers to launch their own funds. So normally you're going to be in for like 25,000 to 70,000 if you want to launch your own fund. That's some of the lowest prices that we're aware of that exist. 25,000 if you want a multi-asset SPV and about 60, 70,000 if you want a multi-asset, multi-class SPV that allows you to do different investors and different deals. But those are kind of the lowest cost that you'll typically find. VU has created a model now with a partnership that we have with Assure where we can have emerging fund managers essentially launch their fund for almost zero. And so the cost being brought down to zero, start doing deal by deal investments and being able to start getting a management fee is just a real you know, total game changer for the industry. It's a lot more cost effective than even launching your own syndicate on AngelList. We built an infrastructure that brings the cost down to almost zero and you can launch your own fund entity within 24 hours with the platform that we've built. And so it really allows you to crawl, walk, run. You, you join you. You start crawling by deal sourcing, doing investments with our fund. You then start, you know, walking where you start building out your own syndicate of investors. You start jogging where you start doing your first transaction or two. So we're hopefully over the course of like two or three years, you can do a lot of individual transactions, building out your syndicate, your investor syndicate to where you can then close a committed fund and then you're kind of running. And that's been the story of every kind of great fund manager. Even if you look at Andreessen Horowitz, there's a really good case study at Harvard business school on this, where Andreessen Horowitz did about 40 investments of $100,000 each before they raised their first fund. Some of those, you know, 40 investments at $100,000 each were like Facebook, LinkedIn, HubSpot, Twitter, like they had some good ones in there, but that's what allowed them to raise their first fund of $300 million. So even Andreessen Horowitz did this kind of crawl, walk, run of prove that you can do good deals, that you can secure allocations deals, prove that you can you know, bring capital together for those companies, do that enough times with some success of exits, and then you can raise your first committed fund. And so that's what people do if you're gonna be you know, on AngelList, creating your own syndicate. So we walk everyone through that, but in a much kind of accelerated fashion that you would normally have access to. And again, the model we've now developed is a much lower cost of creating a syndicate, even if you used AngelList, which would also cost you about $25,000 if you created the rolling fund structure, which really limits you to the minimum size Size of investments you can do with us, you can. There is no minimum to start doing investments in other companies. And what keeps you, Skyler, from upping the size of the cohorts? 
in your uh, Venture University program? Yeah, great question. So we're keeping it at right now a 1% acceptance rate. So we just crossed roughly about 30,000 applications that have applied to VU over the last three plus years. Or actually, we're coming up on exactly three years in June, or I guess now with June 1st being behind us. And so we've graduated about 350 people. So 350 people compared to the 30,000 applications is roughly the 1% acceptance rate. We purposely suppress the number of people that we're ever going to accept, mainly because getting into venture capital is really competitive and there's not tons of venture funds out there. So in the United States, depending on where you get the stats from, there's about, call it 1,500 to 3,000 venture funds, depending on whether you're considering those be active venture funds or ones that are still doing follow-on capital but no new investments. But between 1,500 and 3,000 venture funds that exist. And so if you're graduating, you know, we've now graduated 300 plus people from the program, there's an absorption factor. So it would be irresponsible for us to graduate you know, 100 people a quarter versus 30 people a quarter if we wanna have a high success rate in absorption of people getting VC and PE jobs afterwards. So it is a kind of a self-limiting game. Uh, now, there's certainly been companies that are copycats of Venture University, and that's always, it's supposed to be a flattering thing when people do that. I just think it's <laughs> annoying, especially when they're people that you were previously connected to in the past. I think it's just a shitty thing to do, but you know, it doesn't stop people from doing it. The difference I would say is that there is always gonna be the Harvard and Princeton, and there's always is going to be the University of Phoenix and everyone knows which one's which and so it goes back to like you could learn from people that have no investment experience that are still learning how to do venture capital themselves or you can learn from people that have you know 45 years of venture experience you know 10 plus unicorns under their belt where we were some of the earliest and largest investors in those companies the prices for the program certainly reflect that and the quality of the experience so I think it's one of the great things is we certainly have created a whole new type of education for the industry and there's certainly funds that have started copying us, but they don't put a lot of debt, time and dedication into kind of creating a scout program. I think the, the, the alternative that what existed before was scout programs. Those are really unstructured programs where from time to time you'll talk to the partners at that fund and share deal flow, but they're not dedicated to your career development. They're not dedicated to your skill development and having actually a completely structured program on the academic side and what you get to do as a full-time you know, team member is a big difference. And again, there's always going to be that range of internships, scout programs, then there's going to be Venture University. It's funny because I was about to ask you about scout programs. <laughs> so you kind of stole my question. But... Yeah, well, there, you, there you go. Yeah. And again, and, and scout programs existed well before VU, to be fair. Like scout programs have been around for a while, but they are very unstructured. And it's kind of like you're kind of acting as a free investment banker. It's like, I'm not a VC, but I know a VC that if I like your deal, I might share it with an actual VC and maybe that person will bring it to the partners meeting and maybe they'll get you'll get capital, but you don't get to decide what gets brought to the partners meeting. You don't get to decide what gets brought to the investment committee. At VU, you do. And again, it goes back to the elevated situation of yeah. what type of quality work experience are you looking to build for yourself? And it's just someone who's taking their career a lot more seriously. To be fair, wouldn't you say... You have quite a few scout programs now where the scout is allowed to make the investment decision on her own. Yeah, yeah, good point. Yeah, so like if you look at Lightspeed has now created a group of people that can do small checks where they can put in like, you know, 20000 to to $100,000 in companies. I think as a VC, when we see deals that were invested in by Lightspeed, the follow-up question is, was it Lightspeed <laughs> itself or was it the scouts of Lightspeed because... The quality of that investment decision may vary. Yeah. And so we don't really put much weight behind if the scout 
from Lightspeed invested in it. It's kind of like throwaway money. It's a small amount of money. So like the legitimacy of how great that deal would be is certainly questioned more than if it was Lightspeed itself making the investment. But is it helping Lightspeed get inside access to a growing number of deals by having, you know, twenty to hundred thousand dollars invested in lots of other companies? I think it's a great strategy for Lightspeed. The difference though is that the people that are part of the kind of Lightspeed program, there's not a structured program that they go through, again, which is focusing on developing their skills, career development, things like that. And so it's a difference of if they could bring those people actually onto their team and be the one determining what gets brought to the actual funds partners meeting. It's just a different leveling up. But again, it's kind of the various iterations that are certainly happening in the industry. And we love Lightspeed. We've done many co-investments with Lightspeed. We've looked at a lot of the deals that their scouts have done, but there'll always be the second guessing of like, even when a fund invests, like you shouldn't just take the fact that Sequoia invests in the deal. You should be like, who at Sequoia did this deal? Because if it was like one of the new associates that were brought onto the team, it might be a different quality than if it's a partner that it's been there for 10 plus years. So it's just like law firms. Like it doesn't matter what law firm you have. It matters what lawyer you have from that law firm. Let me shift topics a bit because we say that at the European VC, we're all about European venture capital. And so why the hell are we talking <laughs> with you and you have no <laughs> office in Europe? All right. Um, we, 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 are, we are over here. Now we, ha- we, ha- we now have eight people in Europe and we're, we're kind of building out cool. London and Berlin as the two kind of epicenters for the startup industry. But uh, I'm a big fan of Europe and we're definitely growing our portfolio there. Yeah, yeah. For our listeners, what is Venture University doing in Europe? Are there plans for Europe? What what are you guys kind of thinking? This past quarter, we have the first eight people that have now joined VU from Europe, which has been great having them and also getting access to a lot more deal flow in Europe because of them. It's somewhat stereotypical, but it is very real, is that if I look at the deals that are presented to us in Europe and the deals that are presented to us in Asia, they do have a similar theme, which is this worked in the United States before, let's redo it here. There is definitely a low volume of, this is a completely new idea that we're doing in Europe for the first time. And that was a stereotypical thing to say, but I've now experienced it quarter after quarter in Asia and now in Europe. And it is kind of funny, but it is true. You do get like, I want to say 50% of our Asia deals are like, this exists in the US, but now it's being brought to Asia. Have you seen sectors or verticals where that's less common? Ooh, where it's less common. I would say maybe on the frontier side, it's probably where it happens, more like where they're more unique. I give one example. We're closing on an investment right now in Asia, which it takes on fertility centers and it rebrands the facility centers into one common brand by reaching out to doctors and being like, hey, join our network of fertility centers. We'll then take on your marketing, your calling center, all of your OPEX stuff. So you can just be a really great fertility doctor. That model has already been proven to be successful in the United States. But that model of building out a consistent branded network of specialists We're now looking at a company in Latin America that does this for car mechanics. Like you have your own car mechanic shop, but wouldn't it be great if you were part of one overall brand of car mechanic shops where you had an online platform for scheduling, maybe had access to supplies for lowering your cost of parts. This company will take on all of your marketing and calling center. So it's the same business model, but for 
you know, car mechanic shops versus fertility centers. I think those type of business models are just fundamentally good businesses. And I think that can be applied to any geography. So you could certainly apply that to, you know, centralizing all the car mechanic shops in Europe or all the fertility centers in Europe. And so those things I think are just good businesses, but they definitely look and feel more private equity oriented than VC tech startupy. But I'd say the way that we've been identifying a lot of our Asia deals and our European deals, we've certainly been a little more risk adverse to doing the higher tech deals in Asia and Europe. We have done more of the um, earlier growth deals in those geographies because we're already taking on an implicit kind of additional risk by doing a European Asian deal that we don't need to add on top of that. So it is an interesting conclusion of like, as we're dipping our toes doing more deals in those regions. We haven't been as tech heavy on those investments. I would, I would say actually for Asia and Europe, where those verticals are very unique to them is on the trade and logistics side. So if I look at the first two deals that we did in Asia, they're all logistics companies and they're solving problems that the United States doesn't really have as a big importer of stuff where exporting is just such a huge dominant aspect yeah. of Asia. It's kind of interesting that that is more of a unique deal flow subset of where innovation is happening. Europe's kind of this interesting blend between, it's kind of like the US, it has certain aspects, and also has aspects that are like Asia as more of a developing market area. So it kind of finds itself right in the middle. Fun factoid, there's almost the same number of venture funds in Europe as there are in Asia. And actually, if you combine the number of venture funds in Europe and Asia, you get the same number of venture funds in the United States. And so it's uh, fascinating when you think of the size of the industry, that's the current state of play roughly from a volume of funds. And we looked at that because as we're growing the number of people graduating from venture university in Europe and Asia, we want to make sure that we don't oversaturate the market with graduates. So we're very mindful of keeping the numbers under a certain threshold to have strong absorption. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.